Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. I'm an oceanographer, and on this podcast, I have long format, casual conversations with folks whose work intersects with climate in some way. I really love working with scientists. They're some of my favorite people, and uh, ultimately, you know, science only gets done because people step up, they get dressed, they go to work, and they get to it. So I wanted to celebrate some of these individuals by inviting them to share relaxed, casual conversations about their lives and about their work. I had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Liz Thomas, and Dr. Thomas is an ice core paleoclimatologist at the British Antarctic Survey, and she's head of the ice core group there. Um, I'm just taking some of this text from her website because I kind of like to let people speak for themselves a bit. Um, she leads a team of ice core chemists, PhD students, engineers, and technicians to produce high-resolution chemicals and stable isotope records to investigate climate variability in the polar regions. So part of what she does, she goes and takes ice cores from Antarctica, from the sub-Antarctic islands, and she uses proxies, stand-ins, uh, reanalysis data, and observational records and model input to try to reconstruct past surface temperature, snow accumulation, sea ice variability, wind strength, atmospheric circulation over long time scales, where here long means centennial to millennial time scales. She's thinking about the Antarctic Peninsula, West Antarctica, and uh, we talk about it in, in great detail on the show, on the podcast here. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, as I've mentioned on the show here before, I'm a very much a modern-day oceanographer. I might think about recent decades or upcoming decades, but that's very modern in this kind of long-term paleoclimate context. One project in particular that I wanted to highlight is called uh, SUB-ICE. That's the acronym for it, the Subantarctic Ice Coring Expedition. Dr. Thomas is the principal investigator on that, and uh, one of the things that's interesting about the project, I mean, in addition to being useful scientifically, is that it was part of this International Antarctic Circumnavigation Expedition, the uh, ACE cruise. So I'll talk about that in a second, but let me tell you what uh, sub-ice involved very briefly. So for sub-ice, they drilled several shallow ice, ice cores from five remote and globally significant sub-Antarctic islands. So basically the idea was to get a few shallow cores you know, often the emphasis, and we talk about this more, often the emphasis is on getting these really deep ice cores with long records, but it could also be really valuable to get short ice cores from several different locations, and that way you have wider spatial coverage. So these new cores provide a record of past climate, measure atmospheric pollutants, atmospheric circulation, and including the variability of southern ocean winds, which is a really important factor when you're thinking about uh, how the Southern Ocean behaves as part of the climate system. So let me tell you about this ACE cruise. I was not part of this, so I don't have any first-hand information here. But I remember when it was announced. Not that that means anything in particular. So anyway, um, between December 2016 and March 2017, 22 scientific teams from all over the world boarded the Russian research vessel, the Treshnikov, for a, an expedition all the way around Antarctica. They did biology, climatology, physical oceanography, and they worked on a lot of different problems. So the 
sub-ice project that we talk about is part of that. So I wanted to mention that uh, one kind of unfortunate thing happened, although I, I think it worked out okay. Um, I had a little technical malfunction when I was trying to record this podcast. This is not a professional podcast. This is a, a barely produced outfit. It's just me. It's just uh, me trying to truck around with my little microphones and laptop, and I do what I can to try to record things. But my uh, my nice microphones just did not work, so we ended up, uh, and I eventually I did figure it out, and uh, I did solve the problem, and I can now record using my uh, nicer microphones again. But on the day, that morning, it had never done it before, but for some reason, the microphones just refused to work, or the computer refused to recognize them. They were not talking to each other. They were not happy with each other, despite the fact that up to that point, their relationship had been pretty decent. So I'm not really sure what caused the sudden fallout. I tried restarting the computer several times. I tried uh, clicking on all the buttons that I know how to click in GarageBand anyway. Um, and it didn't work. So we ended up just having to record using my laptop's built-in speakers. I think it came in out, out okay. Came in okay. Came out okay. I think it, it was all right. But um, if the audio sounds a little bit different than the other episodes, maybe not quite as clear, um, that is part of what is going on, is that we just had to basically lean in towards my laptop and talk into it. But... uh since the last episode came out, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report on the differences between a 1.5 degree C world and a 2 degree C world. And um, it is, you know, like you would expect, it's a pretty striking report. There are lots of clear differences between those two scenarios. Uh, I don't really have time to talk about it in detail right now. Um, I'm still kind of digesting bits of it. I know that uh, I'm not going to be able to digest all of it. That's a bit unreasonable. This climate you know, problem is, is way too huge for any one individual to fully digest and incorporate all aspects of it. That's why we need everyone, right? That's why we need all these climate scientists on, um, on, on to, to dig into this. So I don't want to spend too much more time uh, yammering up top here. So uh, without much, uh, let's see if there's anything else that I should mention. If you want to uh, get updates, uh, I keep a Twitter account for this uh, podcast, at ClimateSciPod, and uh, I'm also on there, at Dan Jones Ocean. Um, you can find Dr. Thomas, get in touch with her using the British Antarctic Survey website. I don't think she's on Twitter and such, so you'll have to go slightly more old-fashioned and bash out an email to her if you want to get in touch with her. Thanks again to Dr. Thomas. Thanks for your time and for uh, sharing your work and sharing a nice conversation with me. I really enjoyed it. Let's just uh, go ahead and get right into it. Here we go. How are you for time this morning? Do you have any, you have any pressing deadlines? or? I have you a know? science report I've got to get yeah. in. So yeah, a grant agreement. I have to do my final science report, which I've left, of course, until the last day. Yeah. So yeah, and that's, that's today. Not hours, but yeah. That's got, today. Okay. Yeah. Well, feel free. I mean, we can talk for as, as long or as short as we want. And you know, definitely, if you're feeling like you need to wrap up, totally let me know. You know, okay. because um, uh, yeah, I, I set aside you know however much time you know we need for it. So 
yeah, feel free to let me know how you're doing. Ah, uh, here we go. I need to chill out. I need, yeah, yeah, calm <laughs> sure. down. I need Take to some coffee. <laughs> Thanks for <laughs> helping me with that. Yeah. Um, thanks for doing this. Nice. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm glad to have you here. One of the, um, I, I knew that I wanted to invite you on to give the show a try back when you helped me out with the Cambridge Science Festival yeah. last year. And, uh, and thanks for that again, by the way. Yeah, that's cool. And, um, I don't know if I got a chance to tell you, but I thought you were really good. You were really comfortable and really, you know, you, you were, um, you had a good kind of big presence in the room and obviously you're knowledgeable and you were able to really share that, you know, very, very smoothly with everyone. And it, it felt very natural. So I, I kind of thought, Oh yeah, yeah, you've got a talent for that kind of outreach and that kind of communication. And, um, is that something you get to do a lot of when? Um, I do. Yeah. It kind of goes in, in cycles. So particularly when I first started, I did loads of outreach and I really enjoyed going into schools and doing all of that. But now actually I kind of have less time. I still do like it. I like kind of going and actually, yeah, engaging with people because that's Mm. the thing I think that we, in this kind of institute, we miss out on a little bit. We don't have that direct teaching output to, you know, engage with people. So unless we do actually go out and make the effort to talk to people, you can kind of feel a bit... Not necessarily isolated, but sometimes that like, you're not connecting. Yeah, definitely. Like we we might have a PhD student or a master's student here or there, but we don't have you know big undergraduate classes yeah. where we get you know contact with folks who are studying a wide variety of things, maybe just from different yeah. backgrounds. Yeah, so we do have to be a little more active and, and seek it out. Other, it's easy to kind of just stay in your office and yeah. lab. And I think Otherwise, sometimes it's, you only get that um, real interaction with, you know, do people understand this when you can look at someone's face and you can tell they're yeah. doing that funny look that says, I've no idea what she's on about. <laughs> Whereas when you write a paper or something, it goes out. You don't ever really see that other than what the reviewers comment. Yeah, that's right. And you might see statistics like, well, this many people have you know read it and even cited it and yeah. even... Um, you know, downloaded it or retweeted it, but that doesn't give you a sense. You can't see anybody's face. Like no, you said, no, you don't know if people are really understanding, <laughs> understanding it. it or liking it or yeah. Yeah. So what have you been up to this, this week? What are you working on like now? So this you week, the report. Yeah, this week, um, I've got lots of reports to do. So I held a workshop at Bass, um, a few weeks ago. Um, and as part of the sort of funding agreement for that. So I got funding in to support early career researchers and as part of the agreement, I have to then do a report for the magazine. Mm. Um, so I've got that to write. And then also I had a um, a grant, part of the Antarctic Circumnavigation, the ACE Cruise. Yeah. And that's come to an end. And the funding for that was slightly different in that we got the money in instalments. Mm. And so they won't give me my final instalment until after I've done my science report and after I've Whoa. done my finance report. So, yeah, yeah. this unusual. week I've been doing lots of going through the budget <laughs> and producing a finance report to say that I'm, yeah, everything adds up, which isn't something I normally have to worry about. No. I spend and I know roughly what my final figure is supposed to be, but I don't worry too much individual no, lines. No, and it helps so much to have, you know, actual accounting professionals to help with that sort of thing because I mean I don't know I'm speaking for myself I wouldn't have the the slightest clue like where to start on well I mean I can yeah I kind of can do it to the point of keeping a spreadsheet which says I've spent this much and then yeah yeah and adding it all up 
but it's useful to have them go through it and tell me this is how much has come in, this is the you know the exchange yeah. rates you need to use, and then I just have to complete the form. Uh, a colleague of ours, I, I you know I won't say who it is. I don't think she would mind, but just for her you know her <laughs> privacy, else I won't say who it is. Um, she, I saw her um, after work one day, and she just looked awful. And I'm like, "What's wrong?" And she's like, "I just spent all day, you know, with accounting, like going line by line through every purchase, every tiny purchase I'd made, and it was really, it was really hard for her. It was really torture, you know, because yeah. it's just, it's, it's not what you, yeah, it's not what I would choose to do for my day. No, and so for some folks, I mean, speaking for myself, that I can tell. I can do it, but I can tell that's not what my brain is really configured to do, like yeah. in terms of what I can pay attention to and focus on and dig dig into. Yeah. The whole time my brain is going, nah, do something else. Yeah. It's, a, it's a fight to kind of stay on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this isn't, the, the list I'm looking at is not like an agenda, by the way. We don't have to talk about everything on the list. It's just like, I just like to organize my thoughts a little bit yeah, beforehand, you know. Yeah. I, um, I got some kind of big large-scale science questions that I like to ask everybody so it'd be good to hear your thoughts on it and don't feel pressure they don't have to you don't have to have you know earth-shattering you know answers it can just be your your reaction to like um so in your field so you're an ice core scientist Mm -hmm. you go and collect ice cores you you dig them out of of the ice drill them them out of the ice I knew I was using I I could tell as I was saying it I'm like no not dig drill them them out of the ice you bring them back to the lab and analyze them in different ways. And, uh, well, you mentioned the, the sub-ice, uh, the sub-ice project, the, the, the one that you just said finished and that you're now crunching through the accounting on. Do you want to say a little bit about that, about um, what, what that involves? Yeah, so, I mean, that was my most recent field work. Um, and that was, that was a really interesting project because I'm interested in, so particularly looking at climate variability in the more recent periods, um, so I'm interested in how we can kind of, you know, there's evidence of changes, particularly Antarctica, changes, warming surface temperatures. And I'm kind of interested in seeing how we can put that into context yeah. because our records are so short. What's so, the more recent fruit for you? So I'm talking the last sort of several hundred to a couple of thousand years is my kind of time okay. period. Yeah. yeah, in the paleo world, that is really recent. So, yeah, yeah so <laughs> I'm quite an unusual ice core scientist because, and, and originally, I mean, in my PhD, I was very much more paleo, looking at glacial changes, whereas now I, I kind of feel like I'm in that crossover between being a climatologist and a paleoclimatologist. I'm not sure at what point you, you switch from one to the other, mm. but I'm, I'm in between. And so some of the things that I'm really interested in is what's been causing these recent changes particularly in places like the Antarctic Peninsula and something that keeps coming up is changes in the strengths of the westerly winds mm-hmm. so these are big winds that whiz around the continent and they can have a huge impact not only on the climate of Antarctica but the climate globally and changing ocean circulation atmospheric circulation so they can have a, a really big um, impact yeah and so when I want to think about okay well we can reconstruct an awful lot from ice cores, but actually reconstructing winds is, is a relatively difficult thing to do. And if we really want to reconstruct these winds, you know, we're either reconstructing them from within the continent or, or sort of north of the continent, so from the, the land masses, South America, South Africa, mm-hmm. whereas actually what we want to do is be right in the middle of them. So these winds whiz around, and thankfully there's some little islands that are dotted and some of them are actually right in the middle of this wind belt. Yeah. 
So this has kind of been an interest in an area that I've been trying to get to. So um, I really, really want to get to South Georgia and drill a deep core mm. there. That's in a perfect location. But I've actually really, really struggled with logistics. It's very difficult to get to. Mm. It's very expensive to get up to these high um, altitude sites. You need helicopters, yeah. which Bass doesn't have. So I've been kind of working on this problem for quite a while. And then when this... Um, this ACE expedition came up, you know, it was an unusual funding model in that somebody turned up and said, I'm going to charter an icebreaker, take it around the continent, stop at all these sub-Antarctic islands, and I've got two helicopters. You know, so for me, it was like, brilliant. This is someone who's just sort of got into my head and thought, where do I want to go? And provided the logistics. Yeah, it was someone in Switzerland, right? It was the Swiss. Yeah, so this is, a, this is um, Frederick Paulson. So it's a privately funded... Um, expedition, which for us at Bath is quite unusual. Yeah, we normally unusual. work very much more within the NERC, you know, UK funding streams, and I, we don't mm. deviate much from that. Yeah. So this was quite an unusual one, and I think it it's created quite a few. Um, it's been a bit of a learning curve, right? Yeah, because it's not just <laughs> uh, the same standard yeah, it's you know, cycle that we're used People to. People yeah. aren't used to it, so you know, here if we want to go and do Antarctic field work, we've got the experts down the corridor. We just go and chat to them. Whereas mm. this was taking it slightly outside of that, which made people a little uncomfortable. Um, but for me, scientifically, it was fantastic because it took me to all the islands that I really wanted to get to, and quite frankly, I'm I'm really going to struggle to get to them otherwise. Mm. Um, so that was really amazing. Was but South when, Georgia part of that? Yeah, so South Georgia was included in that. So when we put in, mm. so when this came up, I decided, well, I really want to do it. Um, I think the best way of tackling this, because it was an international project, um, was to make this an international team. You know, there's no point in me just putting in me and Bass as a, as a project, yeah. but we need to make this, you know, um, linked up. And that was the other thing that was really good about this, in that we could, the money could be spent anywhere so we weren't restricted like we are with NERC that it needs to be UK or you know we've got mm. some agreements like with NSF so we could do split between right. UK and US this was actually anywhere and anywhere so so for me I brought in the Australians I kind of looked at Antarctica and split it a bit into political sectors mm. <laughs> so you know the Australians kind of have um, Heard Island and then um, looking you know, right. with the kind of different nations that would potentially have an interest. Yeah, yeah different governments tend to have a different um, area of interest in yeah. the sub-Antarctic islands. Yeah, they can't yeah. they can't claim it as theirs necessarily. No, it's, so know, it's well, some of them are. Some of them, some are, of them yeah. because they're, they're, they're outside island. of the Antarctic yeah. Treaty, then they cannot. They are actually. Um, I don't know what the wording is. Uh, they are a, a nation. So, yeah. for example, like the Kerguelen. I mean, that's French. Um, Bouvet Island, Bouvetoya, that's okay. a Norwegian. So, so, so for ones those ones, I on. needed to bring those people in yeah. to kind of give, um, I guess, credibility, ownership, support. So those are at low enough latitude that, yeah, there, there is a government yeah, that is, there is, a, is they, interested in There them, is, yeah. yeah. And particularly, and then the other big one was South Georgia, which, mm-hmm. you know, although it's UK protectorate, it's actually got its own distinct government, governor, yes. um, and it has its own, it plays by its own rules. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so I, made, I was fortunate to make this a, a, an international team, and I worked with a group from uh, the States, the University of Maine, um, and the team in Copenhagen. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a really interesting way for yeah. me to kind of reach out to people who I know and want to work with, but haven't necessarily worked with in the past. Yeah, so you're getting ice cores from all these sub-Antarctic islands, 
to look at proxies to try to say something about the westerly winds. Yeah. Winds from the west yeah. <laughs> is what westerly ends up <clears throat> meaning. So what kind of what kind of proxies do you so, have to look at if you want to say something about well, looking the wind? At, so this is really cool because we're looking at a whole load of new proxies. So traditionally in ice cores, there's not many proxies for winds, but no. people would use something like dust because that's mm. just a, in the atmosphere and it's lifted and it's kind of transported huge distances. So in an ice core, if you see big changes in dust, it might be associated with a, an increase in wind strength. Um, so that's one of the things we can look at. So that's looking at like very fine grain dust particles. Yeah. And you can tie them. You can tie the dust to specific sources. Well, you could, reasonably yeah, you well. can. I mean, there's some places that then you can do isotopic analysis and you can identify where they've come from. There's a slight issue in that actually the rocks from so the, the the signal from South America and Australia is actually quite hard to separate. They're pretty similar. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's one of those mm. sort of annoying ones that actually, yeah, that, that is quite difficult, but that's certainly something you can do. So you can kind of just determine where the source is. But then some of the, the new things that we, or I've been kind of playing around with is looking at what else can be an indicator of wind. And one of the ones that I'm doing is looking at marine diatoms. Okay. So yep. these are from the surface of the ocean. They get lifted up as, you know, winds go round, waves break, bubble bursting. And they're lifted up into the atmosphere and then transported to the ice core site or the islands or wherever we're looking. And we've done this looking at some sites on the Antarctic Peninsula. And we can um, count the number of diatoms, which in some cases can be in the thousands. Um, we can identify their species. We can determine where they came from, so we know that they're new. They're they're, they're modern diatoms. We assume they were probably alive at the point at which they got <laughs> uplifted, um, and you know we can identify where they came from. So we know that they're actually mm. travelling huge distances. They're not local sources. They're they're coming from open ocean sites. Wow. So this is a good indicator. And in some of the studies we've done is that these are a good proxy for winds. I was just uh, this might be too complicated to explain to me quickly, but I was having a hard time figuring out how do you separate the, like, let's say the wind blows some diatoms into a new region and then that's a new population that then can grow and reproduce. And how do you separate that kind of transplanted folk, uh, uh, transplanted diatoms who have become locals versus the diatoms who have lived there, you know, who just kind of stayed put for a longer period of time? Well, I think it's more that there's, there's different, see, I'm not a diatom specialist. Okay. Yeah. But I think there's different types of species. So you have diatoms that you would traditionally find around sea ice because they either need to grab onto the sea ice okay. to survive or they're you know, dependent on, on that type mm. of environment. But then you have general southern ocean diatoms that just need to live in waters of between a certain temperature. And so I think those kind of populations don't change that much. So if you, so kind of your example, if you pick up a, a diatom from the open ocean and move it to the sea ice... My understanding is it probably wouldn't survive. Oh, okay. It wouldn't, so you wouldn't then build a new population. It would just be, have distinct differences. Obviously, they're adapted to different environments mm -hmm. in the same way that lots of other species are. But you might find it in an ice core. Possibly. But then, but you can still get mm -hmm. them to an ice core. Because um, it's so, been blown somewhere where it's not going to do very well. <laughs> no, so once they get to the ice core, yeah. they're buried under the snow uh -huh. and they're effectively... Um, captured into annual layers so mm. we know each year how many diatoms landed at that site were, were trapped in the ice and they mm. remain there um, and so this is a, this is quite a new new idea and it's proving to, to work quite well on the peninsula mm. so we're really hoping that this is what's going to happen on the, for the islands as well mm. because they're actually 
you know, closer to the source, so we should get a good indicator. Um, there's a lot of other kind of things we can look at for in terms of proxies, sort of along a similar line as looking at the diatoms. This is something lifted up from the marine, from the ocean surface. We can look at sea salts as well. So, you know, we see sea salts from ocean spray um, getting transplanted, like transferred by the winds to the ice core site. Then that will give us an indication of how windy it was. Hmm. That's really interesting. And um, I'm always impressed by people who, like, deal with paleo timescales and with proxies because uh, you really have to have a lot of courage to handle the error bars, right? Like the error bars can be big and you have to be comfortable you know, living in that data universe knowing that, yeah, okay, both in the horizontal and the vertical I probably have big, big error bars. Yeah, uh, that's very true. And that's one of the things that actually in the gap that I, that in the sort of science that I bridge, I am very much bridging the gap of the observational scientists who have... You know, very accurate records, very small error bars, mm. and you know, an absolute data set. And then I'm going into the realm of, yeah, kind of a little bit less mm. um, defined and quite a lot more unknown. Yeah. So that can be quite an interesting mm. kind of position to be in to work with both communities. You can use the modern data as a bridge to. Well, I yeah. use it as a calibration mm. tool. Yeah. So that's the advantage that I have in data that crosses into the observational period is that I can take something where I say, Okay, here I've got a mechanism. I can kind of understand the theory as to why this works. Yeah. Here I've got the data that actually mm. tells me what did happen. And then I can calibrate it to the modern record, so the satellite um, like period. I can use the reanalysis data to see how it actually does reflect changes in the winds. Mm. And so I can use it as a calibration tool, which then I can take back further in time, which in a lot of the traditional paleo, like ice core paleo records, they don't tend to do that mm. because you're looking at changes during glacial periods and so there you have the theory which says i don't know um we expect that it was windier during the glacial period and less windy during the holocene you know during the, the warmer periods so so that's the kind of level that they're looking at yeah. and looking at changes but you can't calibrate it we don't mm. have records that go back that far so you can't kind of calibrate to check it you have to compare all the proxies with each other to see if yeah. they're all telling a consistent sort yeah. of story and I guess, like you said, you can bring in some theoretical elements to that as well to see if you understand yeah, and you those. can bring in you can bring in some models and you can bring in the theory and you can, but it's you know I, I, the the kind of time periods that I look at, I have that really good advantage mm. that I can actually then effectively calibrate it. But like you say, I mean, mm. I have to be comfortable with the fact that I'm never going to get a a hundred percent you know a, a proxy that is a hundred percent representing one thing or another. Yeah. But you, so long as you can kind of explain that, you're comfortable with it, and you can use it further back, then that helps you to add those error bars yeah. and say, you know, this is, it, it's accounting for you know, X amount of variability or, or whatever we're looking at. I think that's one of the things that can surprise folks who maybe came up or, you know, got their training in the physics world, you know, where you can really, you can do an experiment and get some ridiculous number of decimal places for every, every constant that, you know, we're, the, the kind of work you're doing, um, yeah, you're not going to be able to isolate, you know, a single variable and just turn one knob to, you know, you have to deal with the whole complex system just as it is right now and try yeah. to extract data from that. Yeah. Yeah. As I said, there's very few proxies of anything that we use in iSchools that is, <laughs> it's simple. Everything yeah. is quite complex. Yeah, that's right. I imagine even the, the, the air that you get that's trapped in the ice cores 
know that that's been influenced in some way by you know, nearby layers and oh, how long has it actually been in the ice and there's a yeah. certain amount of pressure like how far down it is in the ice core means the pressure is different yeah so yeah. you have the changes to whatever proxy happening before it reaches the site so that's something to do with it's what happened at the source then you've got what's happening in its transport path what can interact with it then once it gets to the site then you've got kind of post-depositional changes mm. that can take place so some of the chemistry can migrate can alter can can you know can move around within yeah. the ice um and so you've got all of those different things that you need to hopefully understand account for and then yeah i guess some of those physical and chemical changes can be you can try those lots out in a lab yeah lots you can, of it can be modeled yeah and you can, can calibrate you know, that you can do right. some lab experiments yeah that's helpful do you have a sense of i know you're still working on it but do you have a sense of what kind of results you might get or what kind of ideas might come out of the well some the of the, i data. mean so these are all the kind of big ideas for this project you know this is what we want to do is we want to look at proxies and we want to look at ways we can reconstruct westerly winds and the other thing we were looking at was you know obviously looking at reconstructing just the general climate and sea ice sea ice is a really important one as well and mm. in some ways sea ice and winds and climate i mean they're all they're all quite different and distinct, but they're all working together and sure, you know, yeah. all interconnected. So those are the kind of three main things that we wanted to look at. Um, but part of the study, because the way that they, the crews operated, we actually had a very, very short time period on each of these islands. We were never going to get long records. Mm. So we're only looking at the records that we have got only cover about the last 30 years. Oh, 30, okay. So yeah. they're really short, but they cover the instrumental period. So it's really interesting for kind yeah. of calibration. But what it's shown us is that actually there are proxies and that these sites are going to be really useful. So for me, this was kind of like the first step in um, improving that you could get to these sites. Mm. Because certainly when I put in this proposal, everyone laughed at me mm. and thought, you're never going to get to those islands. The weather's terrible. You're not going to be able to fly a helicopter there. You won't mm. be able to drill. Mm. And the other big thing was they're too warm. They're too far north. There'll be, there'll be so much melt that you won't the record would have been washed away. Mm. And that was a concern, certainly right. for me when I was drilling the cores and I could see these melt layers, I was thinking, oh, you know, is the record, how, will it yeah. have been lost? You know, how that's valuable a, is it going to be? That's a scary thought that our recent, yeah, the recent ice core record is melting away. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, because some of these islands, um, so particularly um, Bouvet Island, I mean, that it's pretty far. It's, it's mm. north of the polar front. It's north of the sea ice. It's right out there in the South Atlantic. Yeah. So, and it's just this little tiny blob of an island that's just covered in a, in ice. Hmm. And so, yeah, I think there was at one time that had, there has been a weather station there for a few years. And I think the temperatures can get up, you know, above 10 degrees. So of course there was going to be melt. Yeah. But some of the interesting things we found is that although there is melt in these ice cores, actually the signal is still maintained. Hmm. So it seems to be that we're getting, um, Kind of short-lived melt events and then refreezing, which then prevents the record from actually being lost. Mm. So, so that in itself is really interesting. It's kind of proving that, for one thing, logistically, yes, we can get there. The weather is good enough, you know, on certain days that we can mm -hmm. get a helicopter there. The ice conditions are good enough that you can drill. And the records that we're bringing back are showing that the information that they contain is really interesting. Nice. So for some of the sites, for you know, for this Bouvet Island... We've actually done some really interesting work looking at um, novel proxies for sea ice. And it's showing that we've got a really good relationship with, you know, um, 
the chemistry of the ice core at Bouvet and sea ice all the way across between South Georgia and Bouvet. Hmm. So that's a really interesting finding, which says, you know, now I can kind of um, use this as a way of hopefully getting other projects funded yeah. where we could go back and drill the much longer records, which would take us back over the hundreds to thousands of, of years, which would be really, really interesting. That's right. Now you can show, hey, we can do this. You know, yeah. you've demonstrated it's possible, it's feasible. And now you're working on pulling the science out of it to, yeah. you know, to demonstrate that you can go all the way from planning to here's the actual science result. Yeah. yeah. So I guess on a 30-year time scale, I guess you should be able to see the westerly winds have increased generally in the southern hemisphere. Yeah. And that's been attributed to both global warming and ozone depletion. And so hopefully you'll be able to see that kind of signal. And you, you know what to expect because that... You know, that's like pretty much in the satellite era. So yeah. that's, that's very well documented, very well known. So that, that should give you a really nice way to calibrate your results, hopefully. Yeah. 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 Cool. That's exciting. Um, the, uh, can I ask you some kind of more general questions? That, yeah, was, sure. that was really good. I really liked talking about that, that, the, the specific project. Um, do you expect in your field, like uh, where you can see, do you expect any really big changes in the near future? Or do you think it's more a matter of smaller adjustments and of course i'm not really asking for a prediction i know it's hard to know but do you see any potential for oh yeah if we figured this out that would you know unlock quite a, a lot of things and i'll let you decide what what big means you know how big mm -hmm. of an adjustment i think one of the the kind of the big step forwards i guess in the ice core field is that a lot of the work that we've done, particularly in Antarctica, and I guess to some extent in Greenland, is that we, you know, we've got very good at drilling these individual long records and producing a long time series of how the climate has changed. And I mean, they've been really valuable. But often they're kind of um, isolated sites. We may only have a few of them and we tend to focus mm. just on one region. Right. And I think the way that we're actually going, or the way that I feel we should go, is more in combining all of that data together to start building up a picture of what the whole of Antarctica or the whole of, you know, the Southern Hemisphere is actually doing mm. and how they're, they're working together. So that's kind of the way I think it's going. It's not doing necessarily so many more of these deeper individual sites, but actually combining the information mm. that we already have and using it in a slightly... It, it, just new ways, slightly, um, you know, thinking slightly yeah. out of the box about it. And actually, this is where I think we need to work more with the, it's the modelling community to help us produce these sort of spatial representations, whereas in, at the moment we're doing very much individual time series right. from a single right. point. And it's actually bringing that together. And so this is some of the stuff I've been fortunate to work with um, for Medley from NASA. And so we combined all the snow accumulation records from across Antarctica and in total, we got 79 records. Mm. Mm. And by bringing those together, and Brooke then managed to put this onto the same gridding as the reanalysis data. So we can then produce a whole map of how mm. snowfall has changed Just over the past 200 years. And so mm. we can see it in a, in a map form. So you can see different regions changing, how they're, you know, how, how different different areas are behaving quite differently as we move through time, which you don't see as clearly from using mm. just a single a single location. Yeah, that's right. Now that that makes a lot of sense. That so yeah, you would like to see a lot of individual cores, 
that they don't necessarily have to be super long. You know, even just having 100 or 200 years of information would be super useful if you're getting that information from, I don't know, 50, 100 different places all around Antarctica. And because that, that might even enable you to talk about regional changes. Yeah, this part of Antarctica responds a little bit differently than this part of Antarctica. Yeah. And to see how that longer term change compares to what we're seeing right now. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, Antarctica is not just one big thing that responds, you know, as a whole. It's very. I think that's it. That's often the, That's often the. Um, I mean, so so it's not to discredit some of these very big long records. I think they have really, you know, they've been really valuable. Yeah. So you know, for example, we've got the the Dome Sea record that has been amazing in showing us what's been happening over the last eight hundred thousand years. You know, that's fantastic. But actually, it's a single point in the centre of Antarctica, and sometimes I think we almost forget how big Antarctica is. Yeah. And it's being influenced by, you know, three different kind of oceans coming in. You've got Southern Ocean, but, you know, you've got the three different sectors, Pacific, Indian, Atlantic, that are all behaving very differently. So we, we can't really expect that one single site in the centre of Antarctica is going to be representative. And in terms of us kind of going forward, because I think that's one of the things that for me as a climate scientist, that's what I want to do. Mm. It's all, I find it interesting looking at what's going in the past, but actually... I want it to be useful. So my idea of how it can be useful is how we can use it to better understand what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. And from that mm. perspective, knowing what a single point in the centre of Antarctica is doing is very difficult to then place <laughs> that on, yeah. how, you know, how... Yeah. Even if you know a million years back... Uh, yeah, it's not sensitive. Mm. It, the mm. centre of Antarctica is not going to be sensitive to these changes, whereas what we really want to know is what's happening around the edges. That's the mm. bit that can have a huge impact on us. It's the melting from... From the edges of Antarctica that are going to contribute to sea level, yeah, for and sure. this can all happen while the centre of Antarctica almost doesn't even really know it's happening. That's so right. that's the that's kind of the, the point that I want to get to is that we're not looking at this as a single landmass with an with an average of what happened. We're looking at the the complexity of the different regions because that is the bit that's going to influence us. That's right. Yeah. As humans, and you know that—that's the bit that, for me, is important. Yeah, and I think that's the direction that climate research in general is going. You know, we we have the global picture reasonably well down. You know, we have the kind of uh, long-term response. You know, we have that reasonably locked down. Of course, there are still things that could be worked on, but we have the we have the basic first-order picture in place, and so now we're in a phase where we need to refine. What's going to happen regionally? You know, what's going to happen to this continent or this country or this coastline, yeah. and uh, on on relatively short timescales, what does the kind of transient response look like? And so, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to hear that that's also the direction that ice core research is kind of going. You know, because I, I I'm aware of it from the kind of climate modeling you know perspective, but mm. I hadn't heard it from the ice core perspective. I'm not sure it necessarily is from the ice core perspective. Mm. Oh yeah, it's just that from that's from. From my perspective, yeah. but that's yeah, that's kind of in my view where it should be. Where going. it should go, yeah, yeah. Um, when you go take these ice cores, are they? I know it will probably be different for different lengths because um, I was really I was fortunate enough on the cruise that I went on a couple of years ago. You know, Rob Mulvaney came along with us, the ice core scientist, and um, he brought some hand operated you know, ice cores, and so we were able to get. Um, we got off of the ship and got onto some sea ice and we got an ice core from an old piece of sea ice and we uh, there was some hiking and I didn't go on the hikes uh, but there were folks who, who were much more physically fit than I am who went on these hikes up into South Georgia and they did take some ice cores um, 
But those only go back five-ish years or so. And it sounds like um, that, you know, for your work, you want to go back a little bit further than that. So I guess, you know, for us, the hand-operated ice core, that was fine. That that, that was that goes back far enough. Um, are yours more mechanical? You've got a, so, a yeah, whole system. So, yeah, we've got a whole range. So, yeah, we've got the, the smaller hand-operated drilling. And that, you know, the deepest we've got on that one was about 24 metres. But, I mean, that's hard work. Mm. It's physically mm. quite demanding. And that can be great for very quick kind of approaches. Mm. Um, that's really impressive. Yeah, it's not easy like, turning those things. It's not. Um, and then, really, when we're moving up further, then we have um, various electrical drills. So we have a motor, we have a winch. So it's, it's mm. you know, it, it's a, a bigger operation. Yeah. And we can, so we have a, a, what we call an intermediate depth drill, where we can get down to about 150 meters, and you can drill a 150 meter ice core in probably a week. It's all a weather week, dependent. Week, yeah. Most of the yeah. So actually, once you've got set up, drilling would be less than a week. Mm. The thing that takes time is the weather and getting you in, getting you out. And so often in a drilling project, I can go out, yeah, spend a week doing the work, but I might spend three weeks waiting to get uplifted because the weather's so bad. So that's the kind of limitation. <laughs> and then on the then we essentially. As you keep going deeper, you just increase the, the muscle power of the drill, <laughs> increase the motor size, increase the, the length of the barrels and increase the length of the winch. Yeah. Um, and then as you do move towards deeper drilling, you have to start introducing things like drilling fluid. Because once you've made the, you know, everything's, the ice is moving. And as you drill a hole in it, it will instantly start to close up right. you know, at varying yeah. rates, obviously. But if you're going down and drilling at, at depth, you know, the pressure means that you've got to have a fluid in there that's the same density as the ice around mm. it so that you maintain this, this hole and it helps to, to be able to drill down to, to depths yeah. of 600 to 1,000 metres. Otherwise, it would just start to close from the sides, yeah. from the intense and then, pressure. then you have a horrible situation when you get your drill stuck, which mm. happens reasonably Frequently. It does, yeah. So there are there are drills stuck There's in various very, I mean, parts yeah, so of Antarctica. I think this is going back quite a few years, but I think with, particularly with things like the, the deep drilling, if it was the Epica one of the Dome Sea, I think they got the drill stuck there hmm. at several several hundred to a thousand meters, and then they had wow. to restart drilling again. So I mean, it's a big, and then that's it. You've lost your you've lost a very expensive piece of equipment. Makes me wonder if someone's going to discover it in a couple <laughs> thousand years, and you know, yeah, have to look up, earth, but, yeah. look up the history of like where did this have come from? Yeah, <laughs> what is this? Um, yeah, do you uh, do you enjoy field work? Is that the, yeah, so, I love yeah. The field work. Um, I don't get to do it so much anymore because I've got children. Hmm. Um, but they're now in school, so I'm hoping that I can start taking more of a, a role in the field work again yeah. because I like. I mean, I love the I love the field work for the obvious reasons, which are you get to go to some absolutely beautiful and amazing places, and that's great. But I also love the field work because it means I can take the science from absolute beginning to end. So I can, you know, follow the process all the way through. I can drill it. I can decide where to drill an ice core, drill it, you know, bring it back, do all mm. of the analysis, and then make my conclusions or understand what it is it's telling me. So it's really yeah. nice, kind of, to be involved in the whole. Yeah, Process. it's very satisfying. You you can put your results in a graph, yeah. and um, I think you know, given the opportunity, I think everybody, you know, even if you're like a theoretical scientist, if you have the opportunity to go do some field work, I think it's really important because um, it's something you might know like in your head, but having the experience of 
doing what you just described, and you go out and you take the ice core or whatever mm-hmm. measurement it is, and you kind of curate it and process it and do everything you need to do with it. Um, when you see results sitting on a graph, like a two-dimensional scatter plot, it just hides all of that sweat and toil yeah, and, and yeah. frustration and all the human stuff that went into, you know, th- there's a lot of strain and stress that went into, you know, every data point on the scatter plot that w- when you look at it. And it's just completely hidden. It's just it's yeah, gone. It yeah. just looks like a bunch of numbers in Excel. Or well, that's, and plotting. I think that's re- it's really important. And certainly with, our, like with my group, I try and make sure, you know, where possible that like this is the PhD student. So on the recent cruise, I made sure I took a PhD student with me so that everyone kind of gets the experience from the field. And then even if we have visitors, if, you know, we have people working with us, we try and make sure that they get in the cold room and do the, do some of the analysis there because it's really important. You know, lots and lots of people use I-score data, but very few of them actually know what's involved in it. And when you physically see an I-score and you see what it has to, you know, that you have to cut it up into these, um, you know, discrete samples, or you see how how we're analysing it. You get a better idea of the. I mean, for one thing, the errors involved, mm-hmm. but also it's like yeah, the complexity of it. It's it's some, and it, this is something I, I find quite a lot when I'm trying to sort of bridge the gap and communicate with the the modern day climatologists and the modelers is that they don't quite comprehend. You know, an, an ice core. I can't just sort of put it through an, an instrument, press you know, press go, and it and it produces all this data. It's <laughs> yeah. actually, it actually has yeah. to go through a lot of stages to get to that. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'll admit it does look like that from the outside because you have such a nice setup in the ice core lab where it, it does look like you just put the core in. Yeah, and, and you know it melts the very bottom of it, right? And it sends the melt water out to a bunch of different channels, and you know, yeah. so that's that's one of that the, is. You know, I mean, that is the ideal is that you we would cut a section from the ice and melt it i mean in reality those instruments it it feeds into you know tens of different different channels each of which has its own kind of um issues errors you know so so the data coming out although it looks like it should be quite simple can (laughs) actually then be quite complicated yeah they all have to be calibrated everything has to be calibrated time stamped um yeah it's and that's just one of the ways that we can do it. And there's an awful lot of chemistry that we can't do in that way. So we have to still have to do the individual cutting into discrete samples, you know, decontaminating, taking off the dirt from the outside. You know, all of those kind of steps have to be taken before you get hmm. get the data out. Can you help me with a very old question that I've had for a while? And, um, you know, no, so this is something that the chair of my old physics department asked once. And this was before I was in the field so I really didn't have any idea what to say, and I still don't know the best response. And I, um, I've, I've occasionally tried to ask a couple different ice core folks, and I think I'm just not wording it right because I don't think they quite know what I mean. So I'm going to try again. Okay. I'm going to see if I can ask it to, to, in a way that uh, will make sense, and then maybe you can tell me uh, what I should have said or what the response, you know, what I should have said to the to my old department chair uh, over a decade ago now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we were talking about these temperature records, right? Mm-hmm. The temperature records derived from ice cores. And uh, he, he, that's not his area of expertise either. You know, he, he, is a, um, he does a lot of quantum mechanics and that sort of quantum computation and that sort of thing. Um, so that was one problem was nobody in the room was a climate scientist, so nobody really knew what to say about this. So he was talking about this long record, and you know we see 
the temperature increases, the temperature decreases, it has lots of variability on lots of different scales, as we like to say. And his uh, question was th about the, the time resolution, the horizontal time resolution of, you know, when you plot a time series, there's kind of an assumption in that time series that, oh, there are data points you know, evenly spaced mm -hmm. in time on the horizontal axis throughout the whole time series. But that's, that's not quite, you know, no. the right way to think about an ice core time series because, you know, I would guess in the more recent past, it's probably easier to get finer time resolution. Yeah. And as you go further back, the time resolution probably gets bigger, um, partly from the error bars and other processes. So his, his question was like, well, how do we know that we haven't just missed, you know, other larger changes in the temperature in the past ice core record? How do we know that um, we just haven't, you know, um, now, again, I want to frame this really carefully because obviously you put more CO2 into the atmosphere, you get more energy down here at the Earth's surface, it warms the planet up. That's, you know, um, that's Victorian era science. That's well established and that's not going away. But I thought his point was interesting that like, how do we know that we are, that we are capturing the time resolution appropriately? You know what I mean? Because right now we're seeing this unprecedented huge change in temperature and we know that that's, you know, in response to a lot of extra energy added to the, to the climate system. But yeah, but you're, you're nodding your head. So I think maybe yeah, I explained so, it reasonably well. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I totally understand what your point is. And it is a valid point mm. because, yeah, so at the top of the ice sheet, you have a lot of snow. As it goes further down the ice sheet, it gets compacted and it squashes down. So you may have, I mean, you may have at the very surface, a year might be captured in. I don't know, a metre's worth of, mm. of snow and ice, yeah. which is fantastic because you can easily cut that metre up into what, you know, is tiny resolution. You could get down, in theory, to weekly. <laughs> Obviously, it doesn't quite work that way because mm. you don't get uniform snow every week. But, but, you know, in theory, you could cut that down and get a really, really high resolution. And then as you go further down the core, and if you might end up a 1,000 metres down, those layers may well have been compacted to the order of millimetres. Mm, right. And then, yeah. obviously, you know, our analytical capabilities are not such that we could get, you know, a really high resolution within that year in, in just a millimetre. So, yeah, obviously it kind of does decrease as you go further down the core. But with some of these, I guess with some of the um, bigger changes, we know what thickness an annual layer would be. You can kind of model it. In some cases, you can actually see it chemically. You can annual layer count it. You know what the thickness would be. Hmm. So then you could make sure that you're either looking at a similar, when you're plotting at these things, you're looking at a similar resolution. Right. So you're, so with lots of those records, you know, the very famous deep icicle records, Vostok, Dome C, like those are all plotted one. at thousands of years resolution. They're right. not plotted, right. you know, they're all averaged over that time period. So that's, you know, even in the recent period, it's all very much smoothed down. Um, so I guess in answer to the question, do we know if we're not missing some of these big changes? I think we probably are missing mm. some of the um, smaller scale variability. So, you know, we're not capturing the, the decadal variability during the last interglacial, for example, yeah. 128,000 years ago. Obviously, we're not capturing that, that decadal variability because we're not at a level where the instruments are going to be able to produce high enough resolution on a very small amount of ice. Mm. But I think we're capturing the, the centennial variability well enough to be able to say this is still unusual. To plot that, yeah. 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 So yeah. I think that's kind of the, the, the difference between it. And in terms of 
um, actually we are improving all the time. So with some of the records, so um, for example, looking at methane, that's something that traditionally was done and you had to have huge amounts of ice. So you had to have a big bulk sample to actually get a methane data, a single data point for methane and the same for the CO2. Whereas now we, we're getting to the stage where we can use smaller and smaller amounts of ice. So our time resolution is improving. And actually in some of these records now, where traditionally we just had you know, a roughly a thousand year record time series for, for something like methane or, or carbon dioxide. Now you can actually look at these kind of decadal scale variability. You can see the variability within that. So mm. I don't think we're missing anything. Okay. Certainly in yeah. our previous interglacial, we can get back that far and say with confidence, we've still probably got enough, enough um, depth resolution that if there were a massive shift as we've seen now had occurred we would have seen it right, right I, I okay. kind of feel that's that's probably true but going back you know 800,000 years or going back into a million years then we probably wouldn't be in a position where we would see those mm. changes okay yeah so there is some time threshold you know we the, the the idea that the recent warming is really unprecedented you know that we are able to go back you know some amount of time and say well yeah in the last X number of years, this particular kind of rapid warming signal is unprecedented. Yeah. Do you know off the top of your head how far back we can go? If, if you can't remember, it's okay. I can look it up. But well, I, to, to make that kind of statement about like, uh, well, in the past, yeah, the, the the kind of rapid warming we have seen, you know, is unprecedented on time scales of. Well, I mean, most know, of the most of the kind of literature would say it's unprecedented, and the, you know, with looking at something like the CO two increase, yeah. we can say with quite a lot of confidence that's unprecedented yes. in the past 800,000 years. Yeah. We haven't yeah. seen that kind of increase. Right. With the temperature, it's probably less so because the temperature increase on that long time scale is actually much less significant. Mm. So that's not to be taken the wrong way and say it's not a significant increase. It's just that, you know, it, it's a smaller change that we've seen mm. relative to the big change that we've seen in, in CO2. Right. right. So, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I guess you'd say certainly within the last glacial cycle, that we wouldn't have seen the jump. That, in that, that water, yeah. yeah. So when you see the kind of famous plots that have the eight hundred thousand year, um, uh, eight hundred thousand year time series of CO two and temperature, and um, you know th those are on some time resolution, some kind that's usually kind of implicit on these plots, and then folks will stick on the more recent, you know, rapid increase. Yeah. Um, so I guess if you're making a plot like that it would be important to have some kind of similar time resolution on that sort of plot. Um, you know, if you were trying to say, yeah, yeah on, on the hundred year average, here's what the hundred year average kind of temperature is doing over yeah. the last 800,000 years. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas see. I think if you did that, you'd see that the hundred year, you know, because the difference we're talking about is the difference between the previous, like the current warm period. And you could certainly plot the last 2000 years or the last seven or eight thousand years and at a hundred year resolution mm. and see that the last hundred years is unusual right that's right. that's the kind of point we don't necessarily need to look at the temperature change in relation to the whole record mm. because that shows massive in massive changes between glacial and interglacial which right. are huge right. the, the changes between the last ice age and the current warm period is massive yeah yeah the, the recent warming we're seeing is nothing Compared to, that. compared to that yeah so what we only need to really do is look at how does that compare within the last when the climate has been in this current condition the holocene 
how is the recent period compared with that? Yeah. And we can certainly do that and say with confidence this, this yeah. recent period is is outside of the expected range or whatever the wording yeah. you know you feel comfortable with. Yeah, and the worrying thing is that you know we know over those kind of hundred thousand year time scales that those cycles of warming and cooling they're tied to changes in Earth's orbit and exactly. tied to changes in the size of the um, ice sheets and kind of what state the you know, ice ice balance of the planet is in. Um, and the CO2 variations seen with that are smaller than the variations that we're introducing now. And those CO2 variations were, you know, big enough to be associated with, yeah, those really large changes between an ice age and not an ice age. Um, and one of the distinctions that you know, often gets lost, and, you know, feel free to expand on this if you want, is, uh, and I first learned about this when I was, you know, digging into uh, the, the, some textbooks to teach a really introductory uh, climate course uh, at, at my old undergrad university when I w went back as an instructor was, yeah, the, um, the mechanism that's causing warming now, you know, it's very different from the mechanism that causes warming over those 800,000 year time scales, right? That the, yeah. And I think that, that distinction is often lost in the kind of bigger conversation about climate changes. Folks will point, you know, some folks will, will point at that record and go like, uh, oh, well, yeah, the, the temperature's just going up and down, and how, how do we, you know, know what it's doing? And they kind of lose that, the, the basic physics argument of it, the basic physics understanding of, like, yeah, you put more CO2 up there, you get more energy down mm -hmm. here. Um, yeah, so the, I think that's an important distinction to make, but it, it's a little subtle, and it takes a little time to explain, so you have to have somebody's attention for long enough to, you know, explain yeah. that, yeah, no, the mechanisms are, are different, and um, that that's an important conceptual you know, leap to make if, if you do want to understand climate variability. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's often the kind of argument that people give me is that this is all natural variability, <laughs> we know it, we've seen it in these long records, and we've seen it in the geological records, and it's like, well, that's true, but yeah, it's, it's like you say, it was under a very different condition, and actually, I mean, a lot of the paleo community, we use the last, the previous integrations sort of previous time we were in this you know, kind of warm phase mm -hmm. as an analog for, for today and for the future. And actually the previous interglacial temperatures in Antarctica did actually, were higher than they are today. Mm. But again, it's, wow. it's actually under, yeah. it's in some ways it's easy to say, okay, we can use it as an analog. But again, the conditions are quite different. Yes. You know, we didn't have, you know, 128,000 years ago, we did not have another source of CO2 mm -hmm. that we have today, yeah. you know, that, that so that's right. It wasn't just going to start coming out of the ground in the huge, you know, volume so no, that is coming out of right so now. So that was, you know, and you can term those changes as natural variability. But I think what we're in now, it in some ways, I mean, the long records are very useful. But in some ways, actually, when you're making this this distinction about how the climate is changing, we actually only need to look at. Maybe it's easier to just look at the shorter records. Mm. Just look at the last few thousand years, yeah. where you can see, you know, kind of pre-industrial post-industrial yes. that's the kind yeah. of transition that we need to be focusing on because mm. then you can look at you don't have that time resolution issue you were talking about we don't have this changes in you know boundary conditions at mm. orbit you know all of that was the same over that period the only thing really that we have changed is us yeah <laughs> and that's the distinction yeah. you know that's that's perhaps you know, so that's why for me the the work that i do the groups that i kind of lead it's all about the last two thousand years because yeah. this is it captures the the um, post-industrialization period really well, 
And we've got hopefully a long enough statistical record beyond that to kind of compare. And that's the sort of point is what's happening now? How does that compare with our baseline? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When you said um, that you get that comment about uh, climate, climate's changed before. When you get that comment, I saw a good response to that on, on Twitter, on science Twitter, which was like, uh, yes, I know. Climate scientists are the ones who you know yeah. discover, discovered that and have have considered it. Like yeah. you got that piece of, you know, yeah, you got that piece of information from yeah. our community. <laughs> with the ones we are the source of that information. Um, is there thinking of that bigger climate conversation? Is there a piece of that? And you, this could just be the science, or it could be the broader kind of social, uh, the social economic kind of problem. The, the conversation, the big discussion. Is there a part of that that's not being talked about enough from your perspective that you would like to see it in the mix a bit more? Um, I mean, I, I find the whole kind of climate debate thing quite frustrating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because, I, I, you know, it, I think it's terminology, it's language, that we've somehow allowed our, our community to be pulled into a debate mm. And a belief right and it shouldn't be about that we are fact finders we we you know however we're doing it we are providing evidence I have no ulterior motive yeah if I could find a way of proving that you know that that man is not influencing our climate I would be incredible you know I, I would make that known to the world yeah. you know it's not like we have an ulterior motive no, I think it's really sad yeah. that we've somehow I think perhaps it's part of the scientist's reserve, our terminology where we like to use error bars, mm. we like to describe uncertainty. I think that's been misused yeah. and that it's somehow put into a believers and non-believers pile yeah. and that equal weight is given to both. And I find that I find that as a community, we should perhaps be stronger in saying these are the facts as we know them at this time and and not allow ourselves to be kind of dragged into something that's that's more of a debate and issue you know an issue that can be right or wrong we just look at facts yeah for sure i mean I, I love that point about you know if you if you could demonstrate that if you could prove that i'd if make you could a prove, hell of a lot more money yeah, than i do now you'd yeah. be set you'd be set you could you know be a professor wherever you wanted <laughs> yes. get as many grants as you wanted if you could demonstrate that like actually we're fine it's all yeah, cool we're all fine. yeah, yeah. So you 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 know you don't become famous as a scientist by just agreeing with everybody else and you know that's a valuable contribution you can come along and say uh and you add your pebble to the pile and and you know, but you're not going to become a big famous scientist by just agreeing with everyone and by just mm -hmm. pushing the consensus is a phrase I've, I've heard. Uh, so that actually, yeah, it, 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 there, there's a lot that one could potentially gain by, uh, by showing that we're actually fine. But unfortunately, the evidence is just so massive and so overwhelming and so clear uh, that it's really, really hard to make that argument in a scientifically valid way. And I think another thing that gets lost uh, or that maybe isn't understood that well is like if our field like did actually find evidence that someone was messing with the data and was lying, they wouldn't last long. You know, mm -hmm. we, they would get destroyed in peer review. No one would want to hire them. No one would want to work with them on grants. You know, if, if, some, if it really was clear that like, oh, a scientist X, they actually manipulate yeah. the data to show something, yeah, they, they would not last long. They would definitely end up on the far fringes of the, the field and they'd have a real hard time getting mm -hmm. the funding and students and money and stuff like that. Um, 
so it's it is it is a really frustrating conversation isn't it because uh you know i've i've got this uh uncle who's still you know convinced that you know climate science is you know we're in for, in for the money which is hilarious to me i'm like what money? <laughs> what money have you seen the little flat i live yeah. in i'm like i'm not, <laughs> like i've got my whole family crammed into a little flat i'm like you know like, this is not this is not a lucrative way to go um but um yeah, it, it, people do get tribal, though, don't they? And it becomes about this bizarre, you know, us versus them and kind think, of belief yeah, systems. It's about belief because mm. a belief is, you know, a belief is not fact-based. Yeah. The, so the folks who are worried about doing something about climate, what do you think they're worried about? What do you think is kind of holding them back in that way? What, why people would sort of question and deny it? Or... Yeah, what do you think? What's your feeling of, you know, what, well, why human. are they worried about we're mm. human and we, you know, I think we're all guilty of being happy in our own lifestyle. We get mm. used to the things that we enjoy, driving cars, you know, mm. it's quite a difficult one to be told, no, you shouldn't be doing it. Mm. So it's actually, I think, easier to just think, okay, I just won't really believe it. So I don't think mm. anyone's a bad person mm. in not um, not acting on it. You know, I don't think that everybody should instantly you know, give up their cars, and I, I just don't think that would ever happen. I mm. think we're human, and people have to accept that. And on a larger scale, on a kind of civilization scale, you know, we're really lucky in the West. We had our we had our phase where we kind mm. of you know industrialization happened. We're now in a really good place. We've got everything that we want. You know, I don't think it would be fair for us to now start talking about the you know the developing countries and say, well, hey, you can't do that. Mm. You know, because now we know it's bad. So I think it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a it's a, a human thing. We're not gonna yeah. That's well, and you know, I'm not an economist, but I mean, with any luck, hopefully they can do it in a much cleaner way than the West did it. Well, that's yeah, the that's, difference. Yeah. We should be in a position where we can say, okay, we knew we made a few mistakes. Mm. I don't think anyone. I don't think blame should ever be brought into mm. it. I don't think. I think that's the danger. When you start blaming someone, they react. Yeah, yeah. And we Get don't want people to yeah. be defensive. You want people to be supportive. Whereas if we can say, okay, we've we've reached this position where we're now you know, technologically we're so advanced in what we can do, we should be using that as a, as a tool for, for helping, making yeah. sure that those other nations have their, their you know, their development is, they can follow through the same path, but they can just choose to do it cleaner. Yeah. And they're not right. going to be able to do that on their own. Only if the, the, the larger nations and the, you know, use their technology wisely, can they help that? But, yeah, I'm not involved with this, and I don't know every detail. But you know, every now and then, uh, I hear about developments where you know uh, folks will go into various um, less developed parts of Africa and help enable them with like solar panels, mm -hmm. so that a small village can be, even if it's pretty isolated from you know a big city and from all that kind of flow of you know goods and stuff if you can equip like a village with a bunch of solar panels suddenly they can generate their own electricity yeah. in a cheap you know clean way and that enables them to you know they can do whatever you might want to do with electricity and and that just opens up a whole world of, of possibilities for for them so um yeah and that that feels that's very satisfying i think yeah. to me that that idea that we could do exactly this that you're talking about is like okay we've We've had our our boom period, and we're now in a really good state. And why don't we, you know, share some of that and and help you know lift more of the world into a state where they'll have more more uh, uh, well, just ability to do stuff in terms yeah. of having electricity and things. That's really exciting. Where um, so you, you were in Southampton for your undergrad? Yeah. Yeah. And um, what were you looking at there? 
Uh, so my you? my degree was actually chemistry and oceanography. So I did a, oh, cool. a joint honours. Oh, nice! Um, I didn't know you could do that there. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I chose Southampton because at the time it was the only it, it just built the new oceanography centre, and it was the one with all the money. So mm. that's why I chose to go there. Nice. Yeah. That that's not the first time this has come up on this podcast. There have been folks, you know, roughly our age who had this like similar stories, or like. There was this, you know, great new department and yeah. a great new building that was built, and it was very attractive. So I That's decided right, yeah. I was going to try try that area. Is that near where you grew up, or did you grow up? Um, I grew different... up in Gibraltar, actually. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh cool. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. What What was that like? Um, <laughs> Warmer than here. Warm. Yeah. <laughs> warm. I don't know a whole lot about about Gibraltar. Yeah. It's. Um, it's a it's, funny little. Um, a funny little. Uh, Bit of land at the bottom of Spain. Yeah. Um, I think it's a British, again, I'm not sure what the terminology, I think it's a British protectorate. Mm. So it has its own government. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Kind of like the, the Falklands is its own government. Yeah, so I think it's the same, it's mm. under the same kind of um, group as the Falklands. Yeah. So is that, and if you're in, living there, you can get, do, you, do they have their own passport and then you can also get a UK passport? Or how does well, that, I mean, how I was there work? a long time ago. Long time ago. <laughs> and, I, and I don't really remember as a child, things like that, but I assume we were just on a British passport. Mm. Um, and, yeah, we were very much British. My dad worked for as a teacher for the military, so mm. we weren't in the military, but we were associated with it. Right. Civil, in the States, they call it a civil service, I think, where you're like... You yeah, know, so, yeah, I guess that'd be, yeah. Yeah. How about your mom? What was she up to? Um, yeah. Well, at the time, she was just looking after us. She had mm. three children. Yeah, oh, yeah. three? That's full time. Yeah. Yeah, 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 so that was pretty much, yeah. Yeah, so your siblings, um, what, what are they up to? If you don't mind talking about it, what are they up to? <laughs> no, so um, my older sister went into teaching, followed yeah. my dad, and, and went and did overseas teaching exactly right. the same as he did. Um, and my younger sister is an audiologist, so she fits hearing aids. Oh, nice. Yeah. That probably feels good. You can help people. Yeah, <laughs> help yeah. People she's she's more of the um, the caring personality. Mm. So for her, it's all about talking to people, caring. Um, right. You know, yeah. And kind of um, yeah, enabling people, helping people. To do yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. So it was warm. Was was it kind of isolated, or did you have enough stuff there that you felt like? You know, I mean, it's different. It's it's as a child's perspective, it was perfect. Okay, because, yeah, yeah. There was. You know, the beach, we looked straight out across to the Straits of Gibraltar. We could, you know, it was, it was lovely. I think it was isolated. It was closed at the time we were there. It was closed. The border was closed off with Spain. Mm. Um, but as a child, that wouldn't have affected me. Right. Obviously, my parents would probably have a, a quite a different view of it. And I think it felt very much like a, a very small expat community. Mm. Whereas I think now it's quite different. And actually, I haven't been back since I was 14. So, oh, wow, really? Yeah. Okay. So when you say it's different now, just the kind of population might be different? Yeah, and, and the that... politics. And mm. I mean, I think there's a lot more um, um, movement across from Spain to Gibraltar. And yeah, I think mm. it's, it's quite a different community now. Okay. And um, what started, when did you kind of tilt in the science direction? When did you sort of start to feel like, oh, maybe I'll... Maybe early, I think. Yeah. Yeah, kind of getting my first chemistry set at about mm. six, and I think that was it. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so that there was kind of an immediate, just intuitive appeal there for, yeah, you, you wanted to... I, I, I think, yeah, it's kind of, I question and I take, and I think that's just the obvious yeah. choice for yeah. me. Mm. Yeah, nice. Yeah, it's not, um, it, it's, it's one of the things you can kind of discover about yourself is like, 
oh, this just seems to be the way my brain is <laughs> for yeah. whatever reason. And so this particular kind of career and pathway seems to seems to fit my brain really well. Um, and uh, yeah, so the oh, I hate when that happens. I just had my brain just you know <laughs> stop. Speaking of brains working in different ways, my brain just was like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm just going to put the brakes on for a second and just halt. Um, yeah, so you were at Southampton for your undergrad, chemistry and oceanography, and um, did you get, did that involve any, did you have to go get on a, a shift at any point no, during that? Like that? Work, no, field work, actually, no. mm. Okay. And um, did you enjoy it there? Was it good? Yeah. Good program? Yeah. yeah solid? I was, yeah. yeah, I think it was quite good. Um, yeah, I can't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how that happens. Because like, while you were in the middle of it, you know, I, I imagine if your undergrad experience was like mine, it was like, yeah, that, that's what I was doing. Like that was, yeah, it was, you know, in, I classes, it was probably and, you know, intense at the time, whereas now it's all kind of just a blur. Yeah. And if, if we're not careful, you know, now that we're a bit older and now that that feels so far behind us, I think one of the traps that I'm not saying you have or I have, but one of the traps one can fall into is, is to kind of put that down of like, oh yeah, you're, you're just an undergrad and you're just, yeah. no, no, those struggles are real. That's a real, yeah, that yeah. can be a real intense period. And uh, it's not necessarily easier than what you're experiencing now. It's just different. You know, the whole way it's configured is different and yeah. the, the stresses you have to deal with are different. Oh, I couldn't you know, go back you know. to being an undergrad now. <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't have the no. concentration. Like, no. Now when I have to, you know, I think we used to sit in lectures for hours. All day, yeah. yeah hours and All hours. Yeah. And now if I kind of go to a conference, yeah. I'm absolutely beat by that's day right. two. That's right. I just, yeah. Even sitting through a longish meeting is kind yeah. of torture. Like, yeah. oh, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a skill set being able to sit and just, you know, kind of uh, and, and listen and, and hopefully Take engage information with information. Take information in without, without, yeah, any kind of form of two-way communication yeah yeah for sure so after Southampton where did you end up um then I went off traveling because I wasn't really sure at that point what I wanted to do Mm. um and then I came back and had various kind of jobs I worked at the Millennium Seed Bank for a little while so I knew it was kind of science I wanted to go into but I couldn't really figure out what is that the one up in the in the high arctic the Millennium no no so that's actually at one of the national trust properties um Mm. in South Finland Oh, I haven't heard about that. Yeah, yeah. So Can you say a little yeah. bit? Um, so, well, it was set up Millennium, um, and it was the intention was to yeah gather all the world's seeds. So they have a big um, freezer storage, and they go out seed collecting. And mm. yeah, I just worked there as a lab technician. That's and really then, cool. Yeah, while well, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and then a job came up at Bath, um, and it was uh, like an analytical chemist role. It was a two-year fixed term, and mm. I came and I got that job, and I thought, right, I'd like to do this, mm. and then I'd like to go and do a, a PhD. So actually, I remember coming and having my interview, and I told them that I was really interested in coming here for the experience, but I'd like to go and do a PhD. You know, and I, I remember asking them, would it be possible if I just stayed for a year? And they still offered me the job, and then it was maybe eight years later when when I was asked, so uh, when exactly, you know, I thought you are only coming for a year. But then because I... <laughs> When I joined, I realized pretty quickly that actually what I was doing in my job here, I could use to turn into a PhD, and I became interested in ice cores. So right. then I did my PhD whilst working, and kept my job, and I've been here nearly 15 years. Yeah, and you did that with Open University, yeah, right? Yeah. Bath and Open University, yeah. I think um, Hugh Griffiths did something really similar. Yeah, so yeah. it used to be really common mm. in Bath. We used, there used to be lots of us, and it used to be... Um, 
So like the marine assistants every, you know, that went down to Rotherham, all of those were sort of registered on Open University and so it was quite a big thing that they had this scheme where lots of us could, were doing this. We didn't have, at the time, we didn't really have many students from external, so there wasn't like a student community like oh, right. there is now. There was just a few of us that were doing it in our spare time, if you like. Right. Um, yeah, so now it's kind of changed and moved away from that. And I don't know of anybody really that does it in that way. Can you still do it though, if you wanted? Is it? I don't know actually. Hmm. Okay. It'd be good if you could, because I actually found it really useful. Yeah. For me, I don't think I would have been. Um, in some ways, I regret not going off and doing a really good PhD in another institute. Hmm. And in hindsight, I feel like actually it's perhaps it wasn't the best idea for my career to have stayed at Bass hmm. from student to now. Hmm. But. It, it was, you know, with an open-ended position, it was too comfortable to oh, yeah. move. No, yeah, you can't give those. No, they're just so few are, of them. Those are precious. And then when these family days, comes yeah. along, it's like you just can't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, those are precious. Yeah, I guess. Uh, no, you, you just have to. You have to make the path that makes sense for you, right? You have to, and if that involves staying in a place, then that's how mm -hmm. it works out. Or if you need to go somewhere else, that that's fine too. Um, yeah, I, I think. The only thing I've heard about that is my, and this was a totally different field. I remember my undergrad history professor saying, well, you should go somewhere else because people like to see that you've been exposed to different yeah. research groups and things. So I can see the value in that, but I don't think that should be the, you know, some deciding factor or something. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't think that should be like a yes, no sort of, you know, a question. You know, it, it, I mean, you've just done these really cool, you know, grants and, and field works. It seems to be working out nicely for you. Yeah, if I, I think so long as I work with enough other people and work in another other institutes, which I go and visit and I yeah, work in, then yeah. that kind of gives me the exposure and the network. That's right. Um, I think if you stayed here and you were very isolated in your own little field, then yeah, it probably mm. wouldn't be wise. But I try and kind of branch out. Yeah. In other ways, rather than actually having to. Yeah. That's move. right. So when you said that, it was more about the kind of network idea of different, you know, connecting mm -hmm. with different scientists. Yeah. So as long as you actually do that, then yeah. you get that uh, network. Because the, the community aspect of science is really important. And that's where a lot of good ideas come from and a lot of research support yeah, absolutely. comes from. For me, like, ice cores are really interdisciplinary. So, you know, it's not one thing. Everything I do with a, a record, I need to bring in somebody else's. You know, I don't have to be an expert on every single thing, yeah. but I do have to work with somebody who is. And so that's quite good. It means that I do go and connect with other people who are an expert on whatever property I'm looking at at the time. For sure. So it's quite a good way of, yeah. Do we want to finish with a kind of speed round so you can get to your report that you wanted to get to? So um, these are, I like to ask everyone these kind of short questions and feel free to, you know, give a short or a long, as short or as long of a response as you okay. would like if I can get the phrase out of my mouth. Um, what's something you learned about science in your What's something um, I've learned about it? Yeah, just some um, little takeaway or some little nugget or uh, something that it doesn't have to I be know, like science an amazing. As well, answer, I don't know, it's, from, it's kind of what I just said. Science is about people. It's yeah. about sharing ideas. Totally. Yeah, I, I really have enjoyed exploring that theme, like on this podcast, because I think it doesn't get talked about very much. Yeah. Uh, often scientists are depicted as kind of lone geniuses, or you know, they they yeah. documentaries even sometimes do a bad job, but they strip out all the facts that like. No, no, I need like a whole ship with a whole crew a whole full of people. Of people with me, and it's yeah. a collaboration, not an. A, yeah, and I, yeah. I think perhaps the uh, the old yeah, it's that old-fashioned image of this, you know, professor 
and they do just ignore the fact that that professor only got there because there was a big team of people supporting mm. him. And yeah, yeah so for sure. I think it's all about people and collaboration. Community. What's something you've learned about field work? Um, <laughs> no, I love I love field work. Um, you just learn something about how you behave in small communities. Again, mm. I guess it kind of comes around to people. Yeah, people. It's, it's working in a, in a way that's very unusual. Sharing a tent with mm. just one other person who you've never met before, and spend yeah, sharing a tent with them for for three months in the field. You learn stuff. Yeah, you learn how to. Uh, that's interesting. You must learn how to. Um, when to be quiet. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, Maybe I, mean, I haven't when, learned when, that. Maybe I should have learned that. Yeah. <laughs> obviously, I didn't mean you, obviously. I meant like everybody. You know, you, you, if you're in that, that small group, I guess there must be a time when you're like, okay, I feel like everybody needs a minute yeah, <laughs> to themselves. It's, it's very, so maybe, it's yeah. very intense. Mm. And it's very, um, it's a very different way. You've never experienced that in, in any other work, I don't think. Yeah. I get really spoiled uh, on the cruise that I went on because it was not very busy. There weren't very many of us. We all had our own cabins, which mm. is like practically unheard of. So, you know, we could all just retreat to our hotel rooms. Yeah. And and being on the ship is very different from being you know, out on the ice and something like yeah, that. That's but, the, I know. think that's it. You don't, if you are just, I mean, I've had one, yeah, one case where there was just two of us and we were trapped in a tent and we were there for, for three weeks. Mm. Thankfully, the other person in the tent was amazing. We got mm. really well. He's a great guy. Nice. But, yeah, it could have been horrendous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? Like, you, you, yeah, you need somebody who's going to be, like, a decent human being. Yeah, you know, someone in the, in the that we connected with, and I think it was, yeah. But you've got nowhere to escape. Right, yeah. It, it, it got to the point where it's, like, it was too windy to even go outside and try and have a pee. Yeah. It's like, you know, hey, you've got to <laughs> turn around now. Turn around, please, yeah. <laughs> 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 Just pretend this isn't happening. Yeah. <laughs> Just, and let's never talk about this again. <laughs> like, you know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that does sound like a very different... I haven't had that experience, so I can't quite plug into, like, really being that isolated and that mm. far away for that long of a period of, of time. Yeah. 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 I feel like I would struggle with it. I'm not sure. No, I haven't had it. But I guess you would have to... You have to kind of learn those skills on the job, yeah. right? You just jump in and try to... Like, right, how do I navigate being in this tiny space with this person yeah. for this long period? Yeah. Um, what's something you learned about writing? Um, see, I'm not a natural writer. Mm. Like, you know, school, English, and that was never my strong point. I can't spell to save my life. So um, learning about writing is, yeah, getting other people to proofread my work. Mm. <laughs> That's yeah. what I've learned. <laughs> Luckily, you get spell checker. Yeah, things, exactly. You know? I'd yeah. be I'd be doomed without it. Yeah, yeah. So that so that's something that for you doesn't necessarily flow out very easily, and you know, it takes takes a long time. And yeah, yeah, I think my writing style is improving, but mm. I would I would prefer it if other, I I prefer working with other people and having someone else check my work. Yeah, yeah. You're not alone. There's lots of folks who feel that way about about writing where that's actually one of the harder parts of the job for them yeah. is is sitting down and you know crafting the paragraphs and things yeah like, i can produce the know. plots and the data and i can <laughs> summarize it concisely but it's sometimes it's the rest of it that you need yeah and you can stay intense with people you don't know and be fine for mm. <laughs> that's a very important skill set too what's something you learned about outreach you know, we sort of started the conversation with that but See, I think that's really important. Away. It's really important for me personally because, um, like I was saying, about it, it, it's my way of connecting and realizing if I'm actually—I I don't want to sound 
too big a statement, but I, you know, that I'm actually making it, having an impact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's my way of knowing that, you know, I've spoken, I've passed this information on to someone and yeah. they've, they've appreciated it. So for me, that's really important. Um, and I think it's really, in terms of doing the outreach, I've actually, in a, in a more selfish way, I find it really useful. It helps with my general communication skills for things like doing science, you know, science talks. So yeah. It helps build my confidence. Right, yeah. Like you said, you can see people's faces and see yeah, you know, yeah. how they're reacting to what you're saying. You can see if they're bored or they're yawning. <laughs> yeah. You know that you need to <laughs> make it more interesting. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What's something, um, something you... I'm going to ask, like, what you dislike about your job and something you like about your job. That's something you maybe don't love and something you do love. And feel free to, you can answer in either order you want. We can start with the dislike, though, and, and then end with a positive one. Yeah. The dislike is probably my job has evolved in a way that means I now have a lot more, I mean, it's a lot more paperwork, a lot yeah. more manage, management, because I, I manage a team now. Accounting. So that side is my bit that I'm not. That's not my. That's not my natural place. I would like to be. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. So I find that a shame. But yeah. I guess that's just an inevitable part of where we are. The further up you go, the more management responsibility you have to take on. Yeah. And accounting and things like we were talking about at the beginning. And, yeah, yeah. And meetings and yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's something you? Really so what I really job. like doing is getting to the results stage. Mm-hmm. So, and this is a bit that why I don't like them. The more the management stuff is it takes me away from is you know I've done this field work. I've really enjoyed it. I've got some great results. Now I want to start finding out what does that actually tell me. That's the mm-hmm. bit I like is when yeah. I can start plot, whether it's plotting something up and going, oh wow, that changed or ah yeah. oh, that makes sense. The reason mm-hmm. why this happened is because that's the bit that I it's that kind of the final. For me, the final conclusion and understanding what's happened in a process yeah. or something, it's that point. Yeah, and it must feel good when you, you know, you mentioned you had this idea about using the diatoms as a proxy, mm. and it must feel good, you know, if you can see a plot, produce a result and yeah, say, ah, oh, it's it kind works. of working. Yeah, <laughs> that must feel really good to, yeah. you know, to have, have an idea that you, you know, that bubbled up in your head actually be useful and to be able to demonstrate that it's yeah. useful. That that's, sounds really exciting. Yeah. How are you feeling? Good. Yeah, anything else you want to talk about? No, I think yeah. I've talked a lot. Oh, good. Yeah. I don't normally talk this much in a day, uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is, uh, well, thanks very much. It's been really good. Thank it's, you. It's been awesome. Thanks. Cool. Okay. Um, there you have it, my conversation with Dr. Liz Thomas. Thanks again to Dr. Thomas for her time and for her insight and for sharing what it's like to live and work in Antarctica and what it's like to live and work in Cambridge also. So uh, again, you can find Dr. Thomas on her British Antarctic Survey webpage. You can email her there. It's a podcast. Uh, you can follow the Twitter account at ClimateSciPod for updates, or you can subscribe on iTunes. And if you would, uh, if you've gotten to the end here, um, if you wouldn't mind leaving a review um, on iTunes, that would be super helpful because that gives me a little bit of feedback and it also just kind of helps the overall you know, profile of the podcast. Um, yeah, so ClimateSciPod, at ClimateSciPod on Twitter, and I'm at Dan Jones Ocean also on Twitter. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. And we'll be back in two weeks. The uh, next episode, I talked with David Marshall, 
an oceanographer at Oxford. So uh, we had a really good chat. I'm looking forward to putting that together for you and putting it out on the internet for you to digest however you consume these podcasts. Yep. All right. Talk to you later. Two weeks. Bye-bye.